Please open your Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans, the first chapter. As I remarked earlier, I want to avoid getting us too entrapped in this verse by working on what it doesn't mean because of the efforts of those who don't study the Bible so that we can leave this verse with joy in our hearts, boldness in our steps, and love for the God and Savior who has saved us from our sins that we can be fully assured of by our faith. Because faith is the great evidence of eternal life, the first beginning foundational evidence to which there ought to be works added that give assurance to our hearts. The Apostle John would write in 1 John 5.13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Amen. So we want to get more faith out of Romans 1.16 and confidence for our souls. I fear what I must do in the next few minutes, and I hope that you'll understand if you have further questions about Romans 1.16 and the false things you've heard about it, I'll be happy to deal with them. I'm sure the outline deals with them. Because we could preach for ten weeks on Romans 1.16 to undo the damage that's been done to the text and to spend sufficient time to look at the beauty that is hinted at in germ form in this two-verse summary of the whole epistle. I want you to catch a vision. In Habakkuk chapter 2, where the words are quoted from in verse 17, the just shall live by faith. Just prior to those words being written, God told Habakkuk, make the vision plain and write it, so they that run, so they that read can run. And what I want to do is give you Romans 1.16 today so that you can run with it. So that you can live your life based on it. So that you can be like Paul, with no shame in the gospel of Christ, but a total debt of gratitude to the God who saved him, as it's described here. Brethren, we come to the Word of God with some severe disadvantages. One of them is, we do not know the terribleness of God. So that when we look at a text like this, and we have it explained to us, how important the role of election and predestination are in determining its sense, we have that Arminian spirit within us that clamors against such a doctrine. We don't fear the God of heaven like we should because the world paints such a rosy picture for us that we forget His terribleness. But I want to remind you that He damned our entire race to an eternity of torments for one small transgression in the Garden of Eden. You have never imagined any one or any authority even close to that because you're incapable of it, and so am I. If the terribleness of God was fully known and understood, Romans 1, 16 and 17 would be precious indeed. He suffocated the entire earth with water for their wickedness in Genesis chapter 6. 
You know, he waited for three more chapters from Genesis chapter 3 after he damned our race for Adam and Eve's transgression. He waited three more chapters until Genesis 6 when he suffocated the earth with a flood of water for their rebellion and wickedness because they had corrupted his way on the earth. I read about seven nations of Canaan. Jebusites, Girgashites, Hittites, and so forth. And God annihilated them. You can't find a Hittite or a Jebusite or a Girgashite. Because the God of heaven annihilated them for their wickedness. Their wickedness that when described in the Bible sounds similar to the United States. We understand that the greatest tribulation that the world has ever seen upon one group of people was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. For rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about the lake of fire where men shall be cast and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever. This is the God of the Bible. Do not let your imagination tell you that He is different from that. Do not let the world tell you that He is different from that. And if we understood that, we would be thankful for the salvation hinted at in brief form in verses 16 and 17. So we're at a disadvantage. If the full merits of sin were known, if you fully comprehended how terrible sin was, Romans 1, 16 and 17 would be precious to you indeed. That, that God has provided a Savior for you to save you from Himself. To save you from His justice. To save you from His righteousness. And to provide you a cloak of righteousness fully satisfactory to Him. Plenteous indeed to cover all your sins. Brethren, next Lord's Day, by His grace, we will get into Romans 18, verses 18 through 32. And you belong in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And I belong in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And it says in the 18th verse, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men. Verse 32 tells us, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do those things, but have pleasure. Take friends and watch the entertainment of those that do such things. We belong, and we truly are by nature, and we truly are by practice in Romans 1, 18 through 32. But before Paul gets to that 18th verse and says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he gives us the jewel The pearl of the first chapter in verses 16 and 17. The gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us there is salvation. And that salvation is known and laid hold of by those that believe. And it's by their faith that they're able to rejoice in it with a faithful man who comes and preaches it to them. Because the just shall live by faith. That's all he requires of us is to live by faith and he will satisfy our soul as with marrow and fatness with the full forgiveness of our sins. And it's in two verses before he unloads and drops the hammer of divine justice on all men. I have said several times already this morning that we are a damned race, a doomed race, and we are. But Romans 1, 16 and 17 delivers us, and let's lay hold of it by faith this day. Your daily life is a delusion. What you get up and do every day is a delusion. As soon as you die, no one, no one 
Not your wife, not your children, not your grandchildren, not us for sure, will ever give a thought to what you did tomorrow. We couldn't care less. No one could care less. They will never remember it. Your daily life is a delusion. We get up. We go to work. We work. We come home. We eat supper. We entertain ourselves by whatever means. We go to bed. We get up. And we go to work. It's a delusion. You're on this little treadmill like a mouse in a cage. Forgetting the great fact that you're a sinner and that you're doomed to die physically, you're already dead spiritually, and you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire, which is called the second death. This is the truth about your life. Tomorrow's little activities, there's no truth to them. They're vanity and vexation of spirit to boot. I, I, I I need to cleanse your mind from what you're going to do tomorrow or what you did yesterday. Otherwise, the verses don't weigh on our souls like they should. Your life is a delusion. It's vanity. It's less than nothing. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are everything. Because we have a Savior. And he told us about it. Help me, Lord. These two verses provide the germ, the seed of the doctrine that we will hear For the next 11 chapters. Right here in these two verses. Let's hear them again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Look at the words that we have in these Two verses. Gospel. Power of God. Salvation. Everyone that believeth. Jews and Greeks. Righteousness of God. Revealed. Faith. And the just. There are men that are called just. How can a man be just with God? It's answered right here. It's in Christ. And you can know about it through the preaching of the gospel, of which you should never be ashamed, and of which Paul was never ashamed. It is at these two verses where we begin making important distinctions to rightly guide our interpretation of the book of Romans. How we interpret and apply these verses determine how we interpret and apply the rest. These two verses will not solve Romans for us, but we better interpret the whole epistle of Romans consistent with these two verses. Or we're corrupting the word of God. Here is where our minority position comes into view. We are neither Arminians nor Calvinists. We're Pauline Bible Christians that follow the New Testament. We couldn't care less about Jacobus Arminius. And we couldn't care less about John Calvin. We care about the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And his chosen apostles. Especially our beloved brother Paul. Who was the apostle to us Gentiles. Brethren. It is sickening and it is difficult To face the amount of work to get your minds clearly settled on what this verse is saying because it's been abused so much. Some will say to us, but you have to work so hard on these verses. And we just take them in their plain meaning. What those kind of people mean is, we love Romans 1.16 as a soundbite. Why do you worry about what it means? That's right. We say in response to them that it is hard work. 
to rightly divide the word of truth. That's why the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A Help me out with the text because my mind just lost the next word. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is work to rightly divide the word of truth. I ask those little infants in the Bible why they can't figure out Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. That's right, man. They love to go around quoting Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. They love to quote the verse. They don't have a clue what it's talking about. Do you know what they say that verse is describing? The Bible. Hebrews 4.12 doesn't have the Bible within a chapter of it. It is not talking about the Bible. It is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They can't figure that out because they love sound bites. The word of God is quick and powerful. Really? What word is it? It is the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is alive, which is what the word quick means. Because verse 13 tells us, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's not a what, it's not the Bible, it's a whom, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. They can't figure that out. They go to Revelation 3.20 and tell dead sinners dead in sins that they need to invite Jesus into their heart in order to be saved. But Revelation 3.20 isn't written to sinners. Revelation 3.20 is written to saints who have lost the fellowship of their relationship with Jesus Christ. They love their sound bites. Do you know how many times that sound bite's going to be hurled from pulpits today? Revelation 3.20? Well, Romans 1.16 is one of their sound bites that we must get straight. Let me summarize the verse for you. When I did this to my wife in several different ways, she said, that's the whole essence of the first service, isn't it? Yes! Yes, it is! But I have to undo all the damage that's been done. I've quoted the verse several times to you. Let me put it to you this way. You say, is this right for you to give us an alternative translation of the Bible? Absolutely. Always remembering that these are the words that God has given. I am supposed to read in the book of the law of God distinctly and give the sense and cause you to understand the reading. Do you know what this verse is saying? It's the 16th verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what it is saying. I cannot wait to preach the gospel to you Roman believers. For the good news it reveals is glorious indeed, as it describes God's wonderful power in saving us by Jesus Christ, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. I wish it was that easy. I wish we could just sing ten songs. About the salvation we have in Christ, but I need to have you armed and prepared to defend the truth against Arminians and Calvinists who don't understand the text. So let's quickly do it and then sing. Let me say that again. This is Paul writing, and there's a context to it. So we know exactly what he's saying, and this is what he's saying. I cannot wait to preach the gospel to you Roman saints, you Roman believers. For the good news it reveals is glorious indeed, as it describes God's wonderful power in saving us by Jesus Christ, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. 
Because he had a mixed congregation in Rome of Jews and Gentiles. They were already believers and their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. They were the audience that he wanted to address. And the gospel is not the power of God itself. The gospel is the good news of God's power to save us by Jesus Christ. And that's the distinction that we make in Romans 1.16. And there we go, off on the path less trod. The straight gate and the narrow way that leads to life. While the two great paths that the wide gate and the broad way of the Arminians and the Calvinists depart from this verse at this moment of departure. For I am not ashamed. It opens with the word for. The word for is a coordinating conjunction, meaning that verse 16 is tied to verse 15. Verse 15 was drawing a conclusion from verses 11 through 15. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Why did Paul want to preach to those at Rome? Was he trying to save anyone? Or was he trying to establish them in the faith they already knew, but were shaky in? Verse 12 tells us, he wanted to preach to them to establish them in the truth. He wanted to share his spiritual gift with them. So that he could establish them. He wanted to be comforted together with the mutual faith that they had and that he had. That's verse 12. Verses 11 and 12 say these things. He had oftentimes wanted to come to them, verse 13, so that he could have some fruit among them. Like he had had in other churches. He says in verse 14, I'm a debtor to all kinds of men. I'm a debtor to the educated Greeks and I'm a debtor, I am a debtor to the uneducated barbarians. I want to preach the gospel to all kinds of men. And I know that your church in Rome has all these kinds. You have educated Greeks and you have uneducated barbarians. You have the wise and the unwise in the opinion of the world. And I want to preach to them. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I have been preaching in other churches and now I want to preach to your church. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's the connection. I have something wonderful to bring. And it is glorious indeed. It's the message that God has saved us. And before I drop the hammer or bring the roller over you and crush you under the wheels of divine justice with with verses chapter 118 through 320, I give you this hope in verses 16 and 17. Because I've got something exciting to preach to you. For I am not ashamed. Paul preached to kings. He preached by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. He preached to philosophers on Mars Hill to honorable women. He preached in a hired house in Rome with his own soldier. He preached to a jailer. He preached to barbarians. He preached in tongues, in synagogues, to Roman soldiers, to the Jewish leadership. He preached in Hebrew. He preached in Greek. He preached to Caesar's household. He preached all the way to Illyricum. You know why? Because he wasn't ashamed. Because he was carrying the greatest message that the world has ever had. The greatest news. Do you know what? They're going to print a paper. Not for, not for much longer. I love seeing all these newspapers go out of business. It is fabulous. Watch the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and others running losses every year. Because who wants to read their paper? You know, the Drudge Report does just fine. Um, I don't need their papers. But you know what? They're going to publish the news today, and it's going to be thick. You know, if it's a little town like Greenville, then it's only 200 pages. If it's a big town like New York or Chicago, it's 1,000 pages. It's 2,000 pages to get the Sunday edition and all of its components. They're going to publish the news, but they're not going to publish anything as good that we, as we have in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
He said, I'm ready to come to Rome. I'm ready to come to the capital of the Roman Empire. I am ready to come to the epicenter of all that goes on in the world. I am ready to come to where the finest schools are to prepare generals, procurators, and governors for the provinces of the Roman Empire. I'm ready to come there, and I want to preach the gospel of Christ, and I am not ashamed of it, because it is one fantastic message of truth for believers like you Roman saints. He doesn't say a word about going there to preach it to anyone else. He wants to establish those saints better in the faith so that they're not moved away by false teachers that would teach the law of Moses still had a role in salvation. Oh, the gospel was seen as inferior. The Jews thought it was inferior because it didn't promote their Jewish fables that they were the master race and that God was soon going to elevate them to a place of superiority over the Gentile nations. So Jesus was a stumbling block to them. They could not and would not accept and believe that Jesus of Nazareth could possibly be the Messiah because he didn't deliver them from Rome. So it was a disgusting message to them. It was beneath them. It didn't match up with their Jewish fables. But you know what Paul said? I am not ashamed because the gospel message that I have is glorious indeed, whether the Jews like it or not. The Greeks didn't like it because it was beneath them, because it didn't match, in their opinion, their philosophical speculations and eloquent orators and educators from Athens and the other centers of learning populated by Greeks. But Paul wasn't ashamed. He didn't care that he was going to the epicenter, to the very center of the Roman Empire and its capital, because he had a wonderful message that he was carrying with him for believers. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. To whom? To the faithful ones that he's been describing since he opened the epistle. The gospel was a stumbling block. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The gospel, the blessed God of heaven, he has chosen us to have a message that we get to talk about today in this house that the world cannot stand. And he consciously intelligently, foresightfully chose it to be just that way. Amen. He chose a message that the Chicago Tribune or New York Times would not dare publish. Nor would they ever publish it. Because they hate everything that it says. Same with the Greenville News. For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God with the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When God saw that no one would ever see him, that their natural creation wasn't enough because of the wickedness of their hearts, he sent preachers of the gospel that would be received as foolish men and a foolish message by most. But those that were called would adore the message that they had and love it and serve it and obey it. Look at verse 22. We've been over this before, but this is where you need to be established. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the best commentary on Romans 1.16 that there is in the Bible. If you want a commentary on Romans 1.16, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. It's precious indeed. This is where we go to understand the difference that God makes before a person believes the gospel. This is where we go to find out what the words mean when it says, It is the power of God unto salvation. Right here. But I want verse 22. Because Paul, we're we're dealing with the words, for I am not ashamed. For the Jews require a sign. The Jews want miracles. They want a Moses that's going to stick his hand inside his cloak, pull it out. It's going to be leprous. 
Then he's going to stick it back in, pull it out. It's going to be whole. They want a Moses that can throw down his rod. It becomes a snake. Moses can reach down, pick up the snake, and it becomes a rod. They want a sign. Even though Jesus worked miracles for three and a half years and did thousands of signs, they want a sign. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They want someone that sounds like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, or the rest of the sodomites that populated Athens. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. These are the only two options that there really were. There's barbarians in the middle, but they're so dumb. How did you appeal to them anyway? The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach the Jewish Messiah and Deliverer on a cross. Of course, risen from the dead and seated at God's right hand, but on a cross. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks. And this is the church at Rome. When we, the gospel we preached is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Who is the power of God and what is the power of God? It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God in the sense that it is the news and the information and the revelation and the good tidings of that power that is in Christ. But we're not to that phrase yet. We're working on the phrase, for I am not ashamed. See, Paul didn't care that the Jews didn't like the gospel because it didn't involve a sign for them. And because it was a stumbling block to them because the Messiah he presented didn't look like the Messiah they wanted. He didn't care. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'll preach it to Jews. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'll preach it to Greeks, even though they might want me to be an eloquent orator like their Greek teachers. But I don't care. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. And in fact, I'm going to dumb my message down so that anyone that believes it is going to do it only by the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. This is the truth of Romans 1, 16. And we're going to the Bible to find our commentary. Paul exhorts against shame in the gospel. He, and we could turn to many passages where Paul exhorted Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. And my dear brethren, why in the world should we be ashamed of the gospel? David would write as long ago as Psalm 119 and verse 46. He would write, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Amen. When you have the textbook of textbooks, you can address any issue at any time with superior learning and superior knowledge to anyone in the world. Remember, we considered that on Wednesday evening. The textbook of textbooks. I don't care if it's biology or horticulture. I got your message, brother. There's a line in it. You need to go online and look at the textbook of textbooks. Horticulture. Solomon could sit and speak of trees to anyone that came in the world and he knew more about trees than was available, than the, the knowledge was available in the world. The Bible talks about a tree of life. Would you find me a horticulture manual from the highest institutions of agriculture in this nation that knows anything about a tree of life? And you know what? My Savior hung on a tree and I'm going to get to go to heaven because the Bible says, cursed is the man that hangeth on a tree. Wow! You say, I didn't know horticulture was in the Bible. Read the Bible. It's fabulous. I'm getting off my subject. But the subject is this. I'm not getting very far. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's how Paul starts, for I am not ashamed. And there's so much that could be said. Do you know the Bible says, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. You are carrying around mysteries that are incontrovertibly great. Why would you ever be ashamed of it? When was the last time you sat in a public place with a bunch of pagans around you who were just diving into their food without a regard for God and you were ashamed to pray? When was the last time there was a discussion about Christians and they were making fun of Christians and you were ashamed to admit that you were a Christian? When was the last time you stood with somebody in this assembly after a service and all you talked about were the things of the world because you were sort of ashamed to appear holier than thou or too spiritual by bringing up something about the Lord Jesus Christ or the Bible? You know what Paul would say? For I am not ashamed. And neither should we be ashamed. We have the greatest message the world has ever seen or heard. The Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For had the princes of this world known what I'm talking about right now, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But we know it. Everything the Bible has on every subject, we have higher learning than they will ever achieve in their lifetimes. The combined intellect of the human race will never amount to what we have in the Bible. And that's what we carry. Romans 1.16 starts out with, For I am not ashamed. I know you've got a mixed congregation in Rome, you brethren. I know there's Greeks there, and there's barbarians, and there's wise and unwise, and there's Jews and Gentiles. But I am not ashamed of what I'm bringing, because what I'm bringing is good stuff. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16. I can't wait to get to Rome to preach to you Roman believers. Because the fantastic information that I have is God's power in saving sinners through Jesus Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, and the evidence of that being their faith in that gospel, which separates them from all other men, so that I can't wait to get there, because I've got the faith, and you've got the faith, and together through our mutual faith, we're going to rejoice in the things that God has revealed to us. That's what Romans 1.16 is teaching. I said it, I just want to make it clear. But it's a good verse. You know what we should come away with Romans 1.16? Now with a new tomahawk with a shiny steel edge on our belts to tomahawk and scalp an Arminian. We should come away from Romans 1.16 with a passion for Jesus Christ and his gospel like the Apostle Paul had. Oh, so much more could be said. Lord, forgive me for not saying it. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. When we read the word gospel, do you know what the word means? The word gospel is an old English word, go spell. Two parts to the word, two syllables. Go spell, go for good, old English, long time ago. And spell, news or tidings. Gospel is good news or glad tidings or joyful information. That's what the word gospel means. Now, you don't need to look in any dictionary to figure that out. All you have to do is turn to Romans 10.15 and find out where Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7. Then go back to Isaiah 52.7 and read it. And you'll find out that the word gospel is interpreted for you by the Bible as glad tidings of good things. That's what the gospel is. For I am not ashamed of the glad tidings of good things about Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying to us. Oh, brethren, the gospel of Christ, it's good news. It publishes peace. Did you read Isaiah 52 with me this morning? How beautiful are the feet of them that publish peace. What is publishing? It means telling you about it. 
It's not bringing peace. It's not making peace. It's telling you about peace that was made by the Lord Jesus Christ. It publishes salvation. Isaiah 52, 7. We don't, the gospel ministers with beautiful feet don't bring salvation. They don't convey salvation. They tell you about salvation. They publish it. There's not a single soul in heaven because of the Apostle Paul. Every soul that's in heaven is there because of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Paul just got to tell some of those beloved elect souls what God had done for them and fill their hearts with joy and cause their feet to dance and raise the decibel level of the singing in the churches of Gentiles by several factors. That's what he was to do. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Look what God has done for thee. The gospel of Christ. It reveals news. It brings life and immortality to light. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Oh, precious text. Precious text that saved us from Arminianism and Calvinism. Thank you, Lord. Let me read to you. Four verses here. Please follow along. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Paul is encouraging Timothy. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us. And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light. To light. Through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Do you see the gospel there? God chose before the foundation of the world to save his elect. And he chose them in Christ Jesus according to his own purpose and grace, which was given them at that ancient date. But then in time, Jesus Christ came into the world and then it became manifest. When something is manifest, it's visible or plainly obvious. A manifest is a piece of paper that tells what is in the hold of a ship. It reveals what has been hid thus far. And so Jesus Christ appearing made it manifest that God had some eternal plan of saving some by the death of his son. Then where does the gospel fit in? Once it's made manifest, where does the gospel fit in? It brings life and immortality to light. It doesn't bring life and immortality. Paul never carried life and immortality anywhere. He carried the light or the knowledge or the information or the news or the glad tidings of life and immortality everywhere. This is a huge point and a huge difference about understanding the word gospel. It means good news. I can't wait to preach to you Roman believers because I've got some great news about God's power in saving us through Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. That's what the verse is teaching. It's the gospel of Christ. Let's let it always be the gospel of Christ. As soon as you modify the gospel of Christ, it stops accomplishing its purposes of causing the hearts of the righteous to rejoice 
and keeping the wicked from their evil deeds. We need to preach against sin and we need to preach Christ crucified. And we need to keep that the preeminent thought in our church. As soon as we modify that and we start preaching about prosperity and success, like so much which is called the prosperity gospel today, or we preach a social agenda of stopping abortion, which is preached so often today, or if we preach healing services and laying on of hands to speak in tongues, which is so popular today, we have missed the preaching of Jesus Christ. If we preach Christ crucified, the Savior of his elect, who hath abolished death and brought immortality and life, For us, and Paul brought it to light through the gospel, then we're preaching Christ crucified. See, most will not hear it. That way we keep our church at the proper membership. If we start preaching prosperity gospel, the church will grow. And we don't want it to grow that way. We only want it to grow with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to preach a social agenda. Then we get a bunch of political activists in here or a bunch of post-millennialists that think we're going to usher in the millennium. Then our church grows, but we've got the wrong kind of members. We want to preach the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified in order to be like Paul and have churches the size that he would approve of. We'll let God determine how many that is. Oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in perilous times when that gospel is corrupted in so many ways and we can't do that. The gospel describes God's love of damned sinners and his wise and powerful provision of a savior for them according to the good pleasure of his own discriminating will to save them from every evil thing in themselves, every evil thing in the world and divine justice that we shall stand before soon. The gospel is wonderful for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let's just keep it. The gospel of Christ. Don't you think that the word gospel is some sacramental thing that we get to carry around. And because you've got a little printed track, if you leave it instead of a tip at some restaurant, that you're going to put somebody's name in the book of life. That has never happened, cannot happen, and never will happen. And if you ever leave a track instead of a tip, you belong in hell. That is cheating someone who just served you like a slave. Leave them a 30% tip and a track, they might read it. Show a little character. I learned that at Bob Jones. I remember Bob Jones III, and i got to say something good for him. I remember Bob Jones III getting up once when I was a freshman in a local restaurant. There's one not too far away. That was off limits. But a local restaurant had complained to the university that they were getting more tracks than tips from some of the students. And so we got a nice little chat. And I, I want to give him credit. He, he unloaded on us like he was David and we were Philistines. It was good. Anyway, enough about that. The Catholics carry stuff around thinking that they carry salvation. Right. They carry the host. That is their little cracker God. And they think that if they can press that on your tongue and you'll say the Lamb of God as you eat them, that you're going to get saved. They carry around holy chrism. It's, it's olive oil and balsam herbs and whatever else they put in with it to make something they call holy chrism that's blessed by a bishop and all. If they sprinkle that water on your house, the mortgage payments aren't going to be any easier, but it's a blessed house. And so they carry this stuff around called chrism. You can look it up. Google it. You know, it's wonderful to have Google. Holy chrism. You can read all about it. If we're not careful, Arminians and Calvinists carry the gospel around as if it's holy chrism. Right. That it's God's tool or God's means, or God's thing, like the sacraments of the Catholic Church that bring salvation. But it is only the news of salvation. Because the one that does the work, and the tool, and the instrument, and the condition, and the means, is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We believe in justification by Christ alone. Justification by faith is only for the satisfaction of your conscience, the assurance of your faith, and the evidence that you're justified to others. It doesn't change your standing in heaven at all. Your standing in heaven depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ having stood in your place and covered you with his cloak of righteousness. This is the truth of Romans 1.16. I'm sweating I have to work so hard to undo what they've done to this poor text. For it is the power of God. Let's get to the next phrase. Let's not use the gospel of Christ like a sacramental thing that we carry around. You can't leave a track and get somebody's name in the book of life. The Lord Jesus Christ gets every name in the book of life. And those names have been in the book of life from before the world began. Because Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 tell us that. There are no new names written down in glory. As a child I sang that song, there's a new name written down in glory. Oh no, there is not. Those names were written down there before the foundation of the world. They were written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's the Lamb that came and died for them. And it's the Lamb that guarantees their salvation. And not a single one of them will be lost. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful news. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God. It is the power of God. What is the little pronoun it, therefore? It is the power of God. It's therefore, it's, what's its antecedent? The word gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God. But what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For the good news is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. This is the sense of the text. You say, prove it to me. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I've only got three pages of proofs, singles face. So we've only got a few minutes left. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is the power of God. Many believe that election is fully conditional on man's reception of the gospel. We deny. Many believe that the merits of Christ's death depend on your reaction to the gospel. We deny. Many believe reception of the gospel is the powerful means of regenerating men. We deny. Rather than the gospel itself being God's power, we understand the gospel to reveal God's power. It publishes God's power. It brings God's power to light. It reveals God's power. Doesn't doesn't it say that in the next verse? Doesn't Romans 1.17 sort of help us by saying, for therein. Where do you think that is? In the gospel. For in the gospel, Romans 1.17, is the righteousness of God, give me help, revealed. Does that sound like made manifest in 2 Timothy chapter 1? Does that sound like brought to light? Does that sound like publishing something? The gospel brings it to light. It brings the information, the news of it. This is our minority position on the epistle to the Romans. This puts us in a small category of Baptists that have held to the truth in ages past. And of which there are precious few today. But we don't care. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Whether many, few, or none believe it with us. We just want to rightly divide the word of truth. Lord God in heaven, help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Lest we corrupt the gospel or the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Help us, Holy Father. Have mercy upon us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 1.
Verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Would you tell me, if the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, how you're going to save the perishing? I used to sing a song called Rescue the Perishing. How are you going to rescue the perishing when the gospel to a perishing man is foolishness? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which will be saved? No. Unto us which are saved, it was the power of God? No. It is the power of God. To a saved man that God has saved, when he hears the preaching of the cross, he sees in it a description of God's wisdom and God's power in raising up the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of his elect and guaranteeing the salvation of every single one. It's fabulous news. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is a evidence, a cross-reference, a compared, a comparable text that explains to us about the gospel. The power is not in the gospel itself. The power is in God through Jesus Christ, and the gospel tells us about it. It is the good news of that power. Again, we read verses 22 through 24, where it says the Jews want a sign, and the Greeks want wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Why doesn't it say unto the Jews, the power of God? Because when the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God, it is, it means it's received, it's perceived, it's discerned, it's understood as the power of God by believers. And unless you're a saved, regenerate believer, you will receive, perceive, discern, or consider the gospel foolishness. The gospel is not foolishness intrinsically or literally or in actuality. Neither is it the power of God intrinsically, literally, or in actuality. The gospel is good news about God's power in Jesus Christ. And to unsaved men, they just consider it foolishness. So to unsaved men, it's foolishness. To those that are saved, it's the power of God. We hear it. Amen. I believe that. That is a glorious message. But unless you're ordained to eternal life, you'll never believe it. Acts 13, 48, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. That's the, that's the gospel order. God has to choose us to eternal life because we come to verse 24, but unto them which are called. That's our salvation. And when you go down from verse 24 through 31, you're going to find out that the word called here in this context is used for God choosing us to salvation. Because the word called is substituted from verse 27 on with the word chosen. Called is used in verse 26 twice. But it changes to chosen in verse 27 because that's what it's talking about. The best cross-reference for 1 Corinthians 1, 24 through 31 is Acts 13, 48. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many as were called or chosen to eternal life believed. And here's how they received the gospel. Verse 24. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the power of God. And the gospel is the good news or the joyful information of the glad tidings that Jesus Christ is God's power to save sinners and he'll not lose a single one of them. The gospel just brings it all to light. We don't need to get the gospel to make elect. We need to get the gospel to the elect to make them joyful. Some accuse us of limiting the power of the gospel. (laughs) We limit the power of the gospel. I say that the Holy Spirit limits it. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. Since you're close at hand, they accuse us of limiting the power of the gospel. 
We understand the gospel to be good news about God's power in Jesus Christ. And we don't limit it at all. Because God's power put forth in Jesus Christ to save his elect will not result, will, will, will result not in a single failure. Will not result in a single failure. Forgive me for my negative, positive confusion. You understand? Well, they limit the power. We understand the good news of the gospel to tell us that God is going to save every single one of his elect through the Lord Jesus Christ that he raised up in power and who sits in power at his right hand. They limit the power of the gospel because they say it's the power of God unto salvation. Then why do most people, when they listen to it, not believe it? Where's its power? When they preach their gospel, why do the vast majority, like 95% of it, reject it, walk out, and never listen to it again? Let's keep going. They want to accuse us of something? When they do preach their gospel, and the 5% under the emotional influence of some testimony that was given, or the funeral dirge that's being played on two organs, they come forward and invite Jesus into their heart. Why is it that 95% of that 5% within weeks, days, hours, or months walk away and never live a Christian life worthy of the gospel? Would you tell me about its power, those of you who think that you are defending the power of the gospel? Your gospel is a powerless joke. It is an impotent heresy. They say, well, what about Hebrews 4.12? The word of God is quick and powerful. Hmm. We've already dealt with that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the power of God, just like verse 24 tells us. Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. They'll say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 4.15? Paul said... Through the gospel, I have begotten you again. I mean, I I have begotten you through the gospel. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet I have begotten you through the gospel. See, the Apostle Paul regenerated the Corinthian saints in 1 Corinthians 4.15. Did he really? Did he really? That That would disagree with everything else the Bible says about regeneration. But let me help you out a little bit. Would you tell me what he was doing in Galatians when he said that he was working to form Christ in the Galatians again? Does that mean you can be unbegotten so that Paul can regenerate you? Let's see. That would be called re-regeneration. I trow not. Amen. Jesus denied the gospel had power to save men. There was a rich man in hell who said, my five brothers, I don't want them to come to this place. It's hot. Would you send Lazarus to go tell them not to come to this place? Abraham said on behalf of God, they've got the synagogue And the scriptures read to them every Sabbath day. Father Abraham, you don't understand. They never liked church very much. Son, if they won't receive what's done in the synagogue on the Sabbath days, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Because you know what it takes for one to be persuaded of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It takes a born-again, regenerated heart. But unto them which are chosen, ordained, called, regenerated, they believe the gospel. When it says, it is the power of God, do you all understand what it means? For the good news is the power of God unto salvation. And what is the power of God unto salvation? The Lord Jesus Christ, 124. For I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. For the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth. You show me a man that believes this message. Like the Roman saints already believed it. And I'll show you a man that God has put forth his power. To regenerate and to save. By Jesus Christ. This is what we believe. About Romans 1.16. You say. 
But is there really any power in Jesus? I know 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that the gospel shows Christ the power of God. But is there really any power in Jesus Christ? Can you help me understand where that power is? I, I, I think I can. Will you bear with me just a moment? In Ephesians chapter 1 it says that Paul prayed for the Ephesian saints. There was a lot of good things about the church at Ephesus. He spent a couple of years there. But he prayed for them when he wrote that epistle. And his prayer starts in verse 17 of chapter 1. And he gets down to verse 19. He says, I pray that you would understand the measure of God's power that had to be put forth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the same power that had to be put forth to regenerate your dead souls in sin. Now that's a lot of power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is described there in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 as the power that it took to change our hearts. Because if God hadn't changed our hearts, we would be reading the funnies, the comics in the New York Times, ignoring the message of God's Word. What power does it describe? The Bible says, the power of the highest shall come upon you. How did Jesus even get into this world? Through the power of the highest coming on a virgin named Mary. Jesus said, I have power to forgive sins in Matthew 9, 6. Jesus said, I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus said, as thou hast given him authority over all men, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Jesus is able to raise the dead spiritually, and he's going to raise all the dead physically, John chapter 5. Jesus has the power of an endless life, Hebrews seven sixteen. Jesus has the power of his own resurrection, and to raise us from the dead spiritually. And Jesus has his power in our lives every single day. Romans fifteen thirteen. And the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The power that worketh in us is the power that Jesus Christ puts forth. The div- by divine power have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you know how many verses there are in the New Testament that tell us that we are strengthened with all might in our inner man? Do you know how much power that is? When the Bible says strengthened with all might, that's how we're saved. Jesus Christ is the power of God. The gospel is just the message about that power. Unto salvation. The gospel cannot give life. Listen, when we're, when we're dead in trespasses and sins, we don't need a cure. We need life. The gospel can't give life. The gospel is for someone with life. The gospel tells someone with life how they got their life and what they should do with their life. What a difference it makes. The gospel cannot give life, for the natural man cannot will not believe it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Notice, the things of the Spirit of God. You preach the gospel in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and you preach the spiritual words of the New Testament, but the natural man will not receive those things, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, but he that is spiritual judgeth all things. And how does a man move from being a natural man to being a spiritual man? Jesus would say in John 3, 6 to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the natural man. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's the spiritual man. And unless that birth takes place, and thank God it took place in our lives, or we would not care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel can't give life. It's a savour of death unto death. The gospel is not a savour of death unto life. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm almost done. Hurry up with me, please. You're holding me up. I'm waiting for you to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at these words. Look at these words. 
Second Corinthians four three. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. We need to take the gospel to win the lost. I've heard it ten million times in my life. We need to take the gospel to win the lost. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. How are we going to win the lost when the gospel is hid to them? In whom? The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. But we, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. We preach Jesus Christ. And to a man not born again is under the influence of the devil so much that he is blinded to, to seeing what is in the gospel. What does God have to do? He has to change our heart and take the scales off our eyes and open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and our understanding so that we will see, hear, and believe the gospel. How many times in Matthew 13, John 12, Acts 28, does it say that he hath blinded their eyes, he hath stopped up their ears, and he hath hardened their hearts so that they will not believe? God must make that change first. The power is in God and the power is in Jesus Christ. It's not in the gospel. The gospel is not able to change these who have it hid. It's hid from them so it cannot help them. Man's dead in hearing, so preaching long and loud won't change him. As far as changing him from death unto life. Man is dead in seeing, so he cannot see the kingdom of God no matter how well you try to present it. Even if you use a chalk drawing or flannel graph board. Man is dead in understanding, he cannot comprehend the gospel. He's dead in his affection. Because the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So that you cannot do the things that you will. And a man that is in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 through 8. This is what the Bible teaches us. If you believe the gospel, you are powerfully drawn to it by Almighty God. Jesus said, no man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. What does that drawing include? That drawing includes regenerating your heart so that there's something to draw. And then it's appealing to it and opening its heart and giving it affections for the thing of Christ so that you would want to run to Christ. What a difference there was between the woman that was a sinner in a city in Luke chapter 7 that fell at his feet and kissed them. And the one who kissed his cheek and said, hail master. What made the difference? No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Don't you know this is a hard saying, Jesus? Yeah, I know it's hard, so let me repeat it. John 6, 65. It's in verse 44. It's in verse 65. That's why I said unto you, no man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. From that time, many turned around and walked away. He turned to the eleven and said, will you go away also, the twelve then? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the... The word of reconciliation. I can't reconcile you with God. And there's nothing I can tell you about uh, on, on how you can get God to be reconciled with you. God was in Christ 2,000 years ago, legally reconciling all of the elect to him so that they are spotless and without blame before him, so that nothing can be laid to their charge, and all I can do is bring you the word of it. I can come as an ambassador of Jesus Christ and tell you, it's over. You are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, it's all, it's all done. But now I tell you, be ye reconciled to God by crying out of the depths of the guilt of your sins and realizing that God has forgiven you. So we grasp Paul's desire to teach faithful saints at Rome. For they were beloved of God, called to be saints and full of faith. They would benefit from him preaching the gospel to them. He could establish them in the faith. Whenever Paul found someone without faith, he didn't preach to try to give them faith. He got away from them. 
Second Thessalonians 3.2, pray for me that I will be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Right. He did not say, pray for me that God will bless my efforts to take unreasonable and wicked men and give them faith. He said, pray for me that I will be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. So what did Paul do in his evangelistic endeavors? And I want to help somebody that asked me recently about Paul preaching to those that had not heard. When Paul preached to those who had not heard, that does not mean he went to people that had no that had no inclination toward God nor zeal toward him at all, he went into the synagogues and preached to those who hadn't heard about Jesus Christ before. Acts chapter 17 tells us what his method was. He would go into a city, grab the yellow pages, find out the nearest synagogue, and go into that synagogue, and as soon as he had an opportunity, he would stand up and take the Old Testament scriptures, which they already believed, because they were believers in Jehovah God and the Bible that he had written thus far, and he would open those scriptures and allege that the Messiah that these pages talked about was truly fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And those that God had saved and regenerated and already had faith toward God would hear that gospel, and many of them believed. Not all. We'll get to Romans chapter 11 and find out some that did not. But many would believe, and they would follow Paul right out of the synagogue and say, just keep right on preaching that kind of stuff to us. We rejoice to hear that there is a fulfillment to those Old Testament scriptures. That was his chosen method of operation. Do you know what he described that as? Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. 2 Timothy 2.10. That's why he did it. This epistle of Romans containing the gospel of God was for a church of faithful saints in need of further establishment in the grace and power of God against vain confidence in the law, which Paul will undo over the next 11 chapters. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are you ashamed of it? We have one fantastic message. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation. The good news, which the gospel is, is good news, joyful information or glad tidings about God's power in Christ Jesus and God's wisdom in Christ Jesus to save his elect, which are known by believing. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 5, 1. John 5, 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death into life. A man that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ is already born again. The gospel doesn't born him again. The gospel doesn't birth him. The gospel doesn't regenerate him. It tells him how he was regenerated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. How he was saved eternally by God's decrees, legally by Christ's death on the cross, and vitally by the Holy Spirit's regeneration. This is Romans 1.16. I can't wait to get to Rome to preach to you believers there. Because I want to tell you the good news that the gospel brings of God's power in Jesus Christ to save all kinds of men, Jews or Gentiles, which is evidenced by believing that gospel. And I already know your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And I can't wait to get with you for the mutual comfort of our faith together, verses 11 and 12, to establish you in that gospel more perfectly like I have in other churches. I can't wait to get there. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Now catch a vision, brethren, and get passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have the greatest measure. We have the greatest measure of knowledge in all spheres of human learning. We truly have higher learning, and the highest learning we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ about God, wisdom, and power in Christ Jesus saving his elect. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to take a text that's been abused. And trotted around like a mantra 
and give you the proper understanding of it, for it sets the stage in how we shall understand the whole epistle of the Romans. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.